to the end of our, we're coming to the end of our uh, first full day together on this retreat. (coughs) And reflecting on the contemplation that I mentioned yesterday that was often used in our monastic training, which was to contemplate this is how it is in this moment, in this day. And when we reflect in that way, we can, that can uh, mirror back to us the, uh, the um, ways that we expect things to be other than what they are. We expect our experience to have been different from what it is, maybe today, uh, to look at how we judge uh, our experience, uh, the experience of the body, the feelings we've had, the moods, the way the mind is, the way the retreat is. Uh, this is in a way natural, the way the mind moves around experience, commenting on it and, uh, and uh, comparing. And what I find interesting when I reflect on this refrain, this is how it is, it brings up for me, can I really honor how it is, not just uh, reflect this is how it is in a passive way, resigned way, oh God, this is how it is, just have to put up with it. Uh, But can I actually honor the reality of the moment and explore how to be in relationship with how it is in a way that's uh, constructive, that's insightful, that's inquiring. What's actually here? What am I with right now? What is uh, unfolding? What is the dharma of the moment? Which is not easy if what we're with isn't that uh, clear or pleasant, always ambivalent, or we wish it was some other way, or we wish we were somewhere else. So if we're new to this experience of coming into a retreat, uh, we can feel, oh my God, you know, this is the first day and there's ten days to go. <laughs> Actually, we can feel that if we're not new to this experience. <laughs> I feel that. <laughs> uh, And so how the mind frames, the mind moves from the present moment, you know, particularly if it's unpleasant, and it it frames, projects into the future, and frames the future according to what we're experiencing now, and limits possibility, uh, because we can only project from what we know now. In fact, the future's uncertain. Uh, We really don't know what's going to unfold. We really don't know how the future's going to be. It's very hard for us to tolerate uncertainty, isn't it? The uncertainty, the the uh, reality of the depth of uncertainty of our lives. One of the uh, reflections, Dharma reflections, is that this life is like a, a candle flame in the wind. Uh, we don't know when it gets blown out. 
It's not a reflection to make us anxious or morbid, but it's a bit like uh, an awakening. It's sort of saying, well, actually, we can't guarantee the time that we have, and yet the mind projects uh, into the future as if we've got the time to fulfill all our dreams and our plans and our aspirations, and hopefully we will. Hopefully each one of us will have that time, but it's uncertain. Uh, We don't really know. Uh, So this this, uh, taste of uncertainty, which we usually shield ourselves from, uh, is because the the nature of things are very impermanent, ultimately very much beyond our control. And this is one of the, in a way, simple, we can say, yes, you know, all things are impermanent and we can tick that box, yes, I know that, that's a Dhamma teaching. And yet it doesn't really penetrate the heart. You know. I read that in a book. <laughs> and yet the way we frame our experience and filter our life through the projections of the mind, we don't really allow that reflection to enter the heart deeply, to inform us. We make assumptions that that, uh, would suggest the opposite. This is one of the um, initial realizations that that motivated the Buddha to be before he became the Buddha on his journey. It was this, uh, it's called uh, heavenly messengers that came to visit. (coughs) The uh, classical archetypal teaching of the Buddha's life which we can we can think oh well that was all very well for the Buddha it's in the mists of time don't know who he was anyway doesn't arouse much faith or interest but actually the Buddha's life is pertinent to us because it's an archetype it's a historical figure a spiritual teacher but it's also an archetypal um, reflection on our own lives the journey of birth disillusionment uh, despair, uh, inquiry, and awakening, and service. It always sounds like a bit of a linear journey, and in a way it's not quite necessarily so neat as that, so linear as that. But by necessity, the, the um, way of practice is, is in some ways a way of disillusionment talking last night about our ideals and our illusions and our assumptions um, and how much the mind projects the idealization of ourselves, of of spiritual life, of our partners, of our hopes and aspirations and how often there can be disillusionment. Life isn't like that. We're not like how we would like to be. Others aren't necessarily as we would like them to be. And so this, uh, one of the very disillusioning factors is this reality, this reflection on the, on, the, on, on the impermanence of things, on the fact that we can't control outcomes, on the uncertainty. So in the Buddha's life, you know, he aimed at first, before he became the Buddha, he aimed at first at trying to control uh, life in a way that would bring about the optimum amount of security and pleasure. 
which is how we operate when we're ill-informed, isn't it? It's how our society operates. Our whole society, in many ways, is geared towards producing the optimum level of security and pleasure uh, and removing the uh, discomfort. And so it's said that in the early life of Siddhartha, Uh, This was his focus, um, to live within the the pleasure palaces, which is in a way our our modern life is is a bit like a a pleasure palace. (laughs) Things to distract us, things to absorb us, uh, things to fascinate us, um, things to please us. And yet underneath this sort of shadowy, worrying thing that we perhaps don't become very conscious of, if we're lucky we will, this sort of uh, question. Uh, is there anything else? Or what happens when this changes? Or we can't hold on in the way we would like? So in the, in the Buddha's life there's this analogy of him being, or this story of him being, surrounded by that uh, which was seemingly secure and yet within that there was disenchantment not being so enchanted something that that searches something that wonders is this it? you know is this is this all that there can be in life this you know this pursuit of that which is pleasing to me that which is comfortable for me, that which is secure for me. Is there anything else? <coughs> and uh, in, uh, in, this, in, uh, in Thailand, they would call, in the forest school, they would call this experience the uh, Ajahn Chah. When I first met Ajahn Chah, um, he was a great uh, forest monk teacher, um, one of the first things he said in Thai, Bormai, which means basically something like, have you had enough yet? <laughs> you know, have you tasted enough yet? Have you done enough yet? Have you had enough experiences? How, ma- how many more experiences do you need? How many more sights and sounds and pleasurable feelings do you need to have? And in, in Pali, the word nibida, which means to be disenchanted, to not be enchanted quite the same way by the way the world is, by, the, by our hopes and expectations and idealizations. Something becomes weary. And usually in our, in our Western society, when that happens, we, we feel something's gone terribly wrong. When we feel that feeling, it's like, oh my God, you know. I must uh, go and do some shopping therapy or <laughs> go get some Prozac or, you know, somehow cheer myself up or you know, friends will get worried about us. And it can be, that can be a very difficult experience to go through if we don't sometimes understand that it might be the prelude to another inquiry, to a deeper awakening, to a deeper investigation. It might be that something in us that's sort of waking out of a dream you know, the illusions that we live under. 
it's very uncomfortable to awaken out of the illusions that we, the assumptions that we have. So the thing that really awakened the Buddha was this uh, confrontation, and it was a confrontation with the reality of impermanence, the impermanence of all things. And so it's said that you know when he had this experience of disenchantment, inquiry, nibbida, or the way Ajahn Chah would go, Buah Mai, sound like he was about to throw up actually, Buah, Buah Mai. <laughs> this feeling of just, yeah. uh, So when, when this appeared, you know, when it was for ourselves, when it happened for the Buddha, there was this, this, uh, this moment where he left the palace, left the comfort zone, and in some ways coming on retreat, I, I have to admit make a confession that uh, I have enormous resistance to coming on retreat. There's part of me that always thinks, oh, how wonderful. And this part of me is like, oh my God, you know, how can I escape? <laughs> um, after many years. Well, I think this, this thing of just, you know, coming away from our comfort zones, you know, the way that we have security, the way that we have our little sentimental things in place and our friends and our contacts and our web and our network and you know, and and it's good to have all of that. I'm not saying that that's wrong or bad, or that we shouldn't aim to have that which supports us in life. But we just need to know. We just need to be aware that it's uh, it's not necessarily going to be something we can rely on. It's not where we take our ultimate refuge. <coughs> you know, we don't really look to to the conditions of the world to depend on to give us the, the deep security that we really seek. So this this leaving the palace, leaving the comfort zone, in some ways is very much an archetypal shift that happens when this inquiry, when this nibbida, when this disenchantment arises in the heart, when this sense of something else uh, gets stimulated, then uh, often what what it uh, involves is the the, uh, movement into unknown territory. And this can happen literally, you know, very dramatically sometimes for some people. It was pretty dramatic for me just being, in some ways, going off to Asia and living in uncomfortable centres and monasteries and God knows what, and you just didn't know what was going on, but propelled by some inner movement. But it can also happen more subtly in our own inner world. Yeah, I think Jatindra was saying earlier today about you know, the, the, the process of coming on retreat and as we start to sometimes let go a little bit of our internal frameworks that we operate within, uh, our self-structures, we, we get the sense of, can get the feeling of dislocation. Well, who, who am I now that I'm not, I don't know myself as a social being, I, I don't know myself on retreat. We can't really get a sense of a strong sense of who we are according to our projects and our achievements and our being affirmed, um, being successful, being engaged, things that um, I love to do, get a sense of you know, doing well, going somewhere. <laughs> All of that suddenly removed and it can be very dislocating. Well, who am I now? You know, how do I shape myself? You know, These other people, they're not affirming me. They actually will look a bit sort of you know, dour. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not a great party or retreat. So, <laughs> so it can, all of that can be quite um, disconcerting. 
and we can, so we can fill this inner territory of le- leaving our, leaving the palace. It's an, it's an outer movement, but it's often really an inner movement into our known territory. So when the Buddha left, or Siddhartha left the palace, jumped over the wall, this was the story. I'm sure it probably wasn't quite like that, but anyhow, whatever. Um, and he met, as we know, the classical story, the four heavenly messengers, the Devadutas, the... Uh, someone that was uh, sick, someone that was um, old, not just old, but really decrepit, and um, someone, a corpse. So these weren't your classical sort of biblical angels, these were another kind of <laughs> messengers. <laughs> uh, very sobering, something very sobering. Um, and you know, and through it wasn't that perhaps. I mean, it's hard to imagine in India that he hadn't. If, you know, those of you that have been to India, it's hard to imagine that he hadn't seen those things before. But there was something about the level of how his openness to that reality of impermanence penetrated. He said it penetrated his heart, and the vanity of youth left left him. This vanity. It's not necessarily the vanity that's just associated with youth, but the sort of sense of our permanence, the sense of our everlastingness, and the sense of our being, you know, invulnerable somehow, in some way, to this law, to this law of the, you know, that we all live under the mortal realm of impermanence. We're all under the sway of the, the, the you know, a greater law here, and yet as man kind we feel impervious we have these sort of delusions of being in control and enormous defenses against the reality of our actual total insignificance in some ways and according to the greater cosmic law of of impermanence It'd probably just as well it'd probably be hard to actually get out of bed in the morning if we were fully fully aware of the implications so some denial's not it's not necessarily a bad thing keeps keeps us all go keeps it all going but however yeah <laughs> in the, the meditative contemplative journey we're beginning to challenge allow ourselves allow ourselves to be vulnerable to to be to have the heart penetrated by that which is uncomfortable and not necessarily avoid, but to withstand. You know, not to withstand that um, for the sake of just getting depressed or overwhelmed, but to withstand the sense of the uncomfortable, so that it can stimulate us to inquire, to mature, to use our human life, this human birth, the best we can. We don't necessarily have endless time. So when they, they, you know, this penetrated the heart of the Buddha, and the fourth, of course, the fourth uh, heavenly messenger was a sadhu, a samana, a uh, holy person who looked very serene. It's a symbol, an archetype for the path, uh, that there is a way, that there's a path. And so, you know, this is a very archetypal uh, Framework template within which we can place our own journey. That there's, you know, there are these realities, but you know, the the, the hope in it was that the, that stimulates the inquiry, brings about the realization or the uh, opening into, as, as the Buddha said himself, that his through his discovery of the Dharma, that there is this ancient <coughs> ancient path that the ancient ones of old have walked upon. Um, 
that leads to a to a sort of hidden city, beautiful groves and trees, and it's an analogy for nibbana or nirvana, the realization of the deathless, that which is transcends the mortal realm, that realization. So this was the quest, you know, after the impermanence, this opening, really opening to the reality uh, of samsara, the reality of the, of, you know, how we don't really open to this truth, then the experience of samsara, the experience of what's called wandering, just always seeking some security, moving from in the worlds of form, in the worlds of change. Yeah. some stability in that which is constantly moving and shifting and, you know, eventually if we're fortunate enough we will land up uh, f- uh, feeling this weariness with that process and there's only so many beaches one can go to and <laughs> enjoy there's only so many you know, sights and beautiful sounds that we can hear before there's this sense of, oh God, you know, it's lovely, I can enjoy it, but, you know, milking life, milking the moment for everything we can get from it. The irony is that you know, when we actually stop doing that, then actually the, the magic of life really unfolds. But when we're stuck in this sense of sangsaric wandering, we're always looking and searching for exactly the right frame to be within, the right situation. So to, to feel, if we've been feeling today, or we feel in our lives some sense of discontent, or this weariness, or dislocation, or lack of ease, then it's not necessarily something's going wrong with us. We often interpret that as something wrong about me. That's how we do that in the West, don't we? We have such a strong sense of the separate individual that we interpret everything as a, as we know, through our individual experience. But in, in many ways, we're just feeling, uh, feeling something that's very true, that can be very important to open to. To open to this, uh, this, uh, this feeling of dukkha, discontent, unsatisfactoriness, as the doorway to begin to open us into this more profound inquiry. Into what does, what, what is there? That is there anything that transcends this world of change? So to help us um, to help us make this inquiry, uh, one the uh, you know, this is a very I mean the incredible gift of inheriting uh, these teachings is that uh, is that there's a, there's a lot of support and there's a map. There's a, <laughs> it's not necessary. It's a, not necessarily always in the language or in the way that fits our modern psychology. But there is this very ancient map, this very ancient template that we can reflect on and draw on. And so part of this map that Jitindra was talking to this morning uh, is uh, this, uh, this idea of path. 
that which can support this inquiry, that there is a path, there is a way. And as we, we've already said, it's not necessarily a path to somewhere, but it's a path that deepens more and more profoundly into inquiring in this moment, because that's all ultimately there ever is really, is this moment here and now. So this path uh, is often very simply articulated in three aspects, uh, sila, samadhi, panya. Sila, which uh, is to do with ethical living. It's to do actually with um, living as impeccably as we can in creating a harmonious relational field. So primarily so we don't generate a lot of effects in our life that disturb us and disturb others and undermine our capacity for well-being and integration. So it's not just sort of a thou shalt not moralistic, intimidating teaching to generate guilt and fear. It's actually a science of understanding the nature of mind, the power of mind and its effects, and the need to take care about uh, about that, and to take responsibility for the effects we draw into our life from the uh, from the karma or the actions that we do. So sila is really a really a, a very important um, base for the whole inquiry to to create not only an external effect of integration and harmony, but in a psychological internal an internally psycho, uh, cohesive psycho, psychological inter- integrated sense of well-being that we can, you know, when we have an ethical base in our life, then we have a base of trust. We can have a, the foundation within which to, to, to explore this possibility of letting go. We can trust the ground we're letting go into, not, we're not letting go into chaos and confusion. So at some point we can return to this very important area of the path, the sila, which is the foundation, Sila and then samadhi and panya or prajna, wisdom, the wisdom to inquire, the inquiry, the discernment, the dhamma vijaya, the inquiry into the nature of dhamma. However, this middle part of the path which we're uh, focusing on uh, uh, today, uh, next few days, samadhi, samasamadhi, this cultivation of the strength of mind to make this journey. The strength of the atten- attentions, the, uh, the, the clarity to, to generate the inquiry. And the mind is very dispersed, pulled here, pulled there, pulled by the momentum of our habit. We don't really have the steadiness to look clearly, uh, to really see the nature of things, the nature of our thought, the nature of our feeling, the nature of our assumptions the shaping of uh, the assumption uh, of how we shape the sense of myself in relationship to other. So this, this in a way, is a very important part and in some ways this is the, the, the meditative part of the path. Is, uh, well, they're all meditative, but the contemplative part of the path is in some ways quite challenging. So it takes a lot of patience a lot of starting again, a lot of moment by moment building this capacity for uh, present moment attention. 
it's moments of attention, moments of being here, the moments of sati. Sati sampajanya, sati sampajanya meaning that uh, mindfulness, intuitive awareness is, uh, Jin Sumedho calls it, ability to be in relationship with here and now, with, a, with atten- attentiveness. How is it now? What's present? There's one um, a great Thai teacher, Ajahn Lee Damadaro, uh, who was known for his um, skill in samadhi, made an, a very useful, I find a very use, useful analogy about this aspect of the path. He said it's a bit like if you have a bridge going across a turbulent and fast-flowing river. You have th- and you have three pillars to that bridge. You have a pillar on one bank, and you have a pillar on the other bank, and then you have a pillar uh, through the in the middle of the bridge going down through the river. So if you if you think about this in three aspects of the path, this was his analogy. Then the the pillar on the one part bank is the pillar of sila. The pillar on the far bank is the pillar of panya, prajna, insight, inquiry, wisdom. But the middle pillar is in some ways the most difficult to construct because you're plunging it down through the currents of the river. And the river, of course, is the currents of the mind. They're fast-flowing, they're turbulent sometimes, they, uh, they wash away our sense of steadiness. So to plunge down this, this pillar into that, the currents, into the depth the depth of the mind, the stillness, the depth of the awareness. It takes that, you know, if we can think of it a bit like that, then in some ways we can get a sense of putting building blocks in place rather than feeling like, you know, uh, it just helps us frame the relationship to this cultivation, because it is a, a cultivation, in that it's quite a patient process. You know, the building blocks are just placing moments, moments of this uh, sati, this attentiveness. So in some ways it's, um, it's challenging, but in other ways it's very simple because we only really um, can and need to do that in every moment. This, uh, this path activity, samasati, this mo- moment-to-moment mindfulness, is something that can only really uh, happen in each moment. So we don't, if we project, if we sit here and think, oh my God, my mind's a mess, <laughs> and we project that into the future, we think, well, I'll never get there. <laughs> you know, it will always be, uh, always, uh, you know, it's too difficult. But if we have a moment of just seeing that as a, as a thought, as a, as a projection, as a feeling, as a, and just say, well, actually, in this moment, uh, all I need to do is just to be present here. And I, f- I find a very helpful way of accessing that sense of present is just to ask a question, just to bring the attention into what's actually here and now, rather than forcing the mind trying to push away our actual experience over, over 
you know, overpower what's actually here with a, with a willfulness and to concentrate just to gently ask well, how, how is it, what's present for me what's present for you here and now what's present now We can, you know, as we ask that question, then you can see maybe the skidding of the mind, skidding off to the, you know, something that's not settling, maybe. Something that's sort of like flighty. Or or, or we're filtering through our thought processes, listening to this talk. Um, Yeah, no, I don't know. (laughs) Time is it? One of the very first talks I heard Ajahn Chah give, um, which was translated, it was in Thai, it was translated, and I sat there thinking, oh, I mean, it was amazing, amazing presence, actually, amazing to listen to him. I can't remember what he said, but I remember just thinking the whole time, oh, this is really good. This is really, really good. What he's saying is really good. Listen to the Dhamma. And at the end of his talk, he said, well, you know, you've been sitting here thinking this is good or this is bad, you haven't been listening properly. <laughs> There's something about how we listen, isn't it? Relationship to it's not just mindful you know, mindfulness. It's like pushing your attention as an act of will into the present moment. It's much more subtle than that, it's much more dynamic than that, it's much more in relationship to to receptivity. So bringing attention, asking a question, how, how is it, what's, what's here, what are, what are you with now? You know, rather than the ideal of how it should be, if I was really meditating, my mind would be still, you know, no one would be coughing, um, Tanisra would be a lot clearer about what she's trying to say, or, you know, it's... Uh, there would be a better domitor or something. There's this way that we constantly, I, my mind is constantly filtering through the prism of it's not quite right or it's not quite good enough or it should be a bit different somehow. It's often quite unconscious, but it creates this dislocation sense of it's not. So just inquiring further into, well, actually, what is present for me? And as we, we don't have to judge that, but as we recognize maybe that skittishness, that lack of settling, that lack of commitment to, it's here, here and now, this is it. You know, there's, it's only ever, <laughs> here and now, <laughs> this is it. And there's always this feeling, but, 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 but. <laughs> and we sort of sli- slide, mind sliding off, and sort of like holding back for the moment when, it, when it's going to, you know, perfect, the perfect moment when we can, we can commit ourselves to being here. So the simplicity, you know, is, is in the mind very complex, the simplicity of this inquiry, like, well, what, what's, what's present for you? And can we come into a relationship with that? And can we just steady, steady within that, steady acknowledge the, 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 maybe the waves of those currents, of that stream that flows on, that river that's pushing us? And just sit with that, sit with that, sit with that, breathe with that, breathe with that. 
Another way I find helpful coming, this is, this is all developing a skill in what's called ritaka, which is the first jhana fact of bringing attention, skillful placing of attention, which is a support for samasamadhi. Ritaka, which are the two first jhana factors. Ritaka is that which directs the attention, which are is that which is in relationship, receives the moment, directing attention here and now, and then it receive the richar is that which is receptive, receiving. How is it? How can I adjust to be more fully aware in awareness, rooted, rooting, rooting our attention in awareness, in present, in relationship to the four foundations? What's actually here? So another way I find one way is inquiring. What's what's actually here? What am oh yes, if agitation, restlessness. Uh, judgment. Okay. Just breathing with that. As I name it, it starts to lose its power. It starts to allow me to arrive more. And then, and then another way I find helpful is to inquire into: Can I recognise the perfection of this moment? What what is saying? What is in the mind that's saying it's not perfect now? That it's not profoundly okay here and now something that's always like ah. <laughs> so when is it perfect let's put it another way when is it so all these these way these inquiries and ways just helping us to settle to really, and then as the mind begins to, this samadhi is this gathering, gathering the energies of the mind. When I say mind, it includes body, heart, feeling tones, gathering that into our awareness, into this sense of presence, so we can actually explore how is it, what's present for us. Can we breathe with it? Can we steady? So see, we, uh, it's the samasamadhi, the steadying of the heart, relaxing, uh, softening the, the body, relaxing the mind out of its constructs, its strategies around the moment. Listening more deeply this uh, this encouragement of Ajahn Chah, you're not listening. I found that very profound. How do we listen more profoundly into this moment, into our being? We start to notice as we're listening, we can hear the birds maybe, crows. We start to listen, we can hear our thoughts. We start to listen, we can hear you know, <coughs> rustling, shuffling, 
You can uh, hear into our body, the pulsing of my heart, the flow of the blood. You can hear the stillness. And as we, we start to inquire, you know, really being more present and noticing this flickering nature of the impermanent, the flickering, the changing the sound, arising and passing, the sound of my voice, distant sounds. Sounds are very good for samasamadhi, to focus on sound, breath, arising and passing, the thinking, creating a sense of time. What time is it? Is it too long? Is it too short? You start to listen to these, the arising and passing, and start to notice what does, where do these sounds dissolve? Where do these thoughts arise and dissolve into? Where do the feelings and the flickering and movement What is that? It's actually knowing the change, knowing the impermanence. So I don't know, because every word that comes up can just, doesn't really capture this moment. can capture a piece of it, can capture a description of it, but that which is aware, that which is present, can't be captured. It's just that which is knowing, that which is here. So I encourage as we uh, move through this retreat, as this retreat moves through our awareness, uh, to encourage the this path of practice as being that which is really uh, accessible in each moment. In each moment, just returning to here and now, to this moment of inquiry, how is it, coming into relationship to the breath, to the sense of our presence, to our attentiveness, and trusting that it's enough, it's enough to feel like I've got to work everything out, I've got to fix my life, I've got to sort things out, and now on top of all of that I've got to somehow be enlightened, (laughs) it can become really a burden. And one of the, you know, one of the lovely lines, Maka Hatikilesawa, the, the path activity in and of itself breaks up, that which obstructs the heart's own knowing. Dhamma, the 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 um, the, the uh, patunu pati tamatangli. Patu is the the fruit, the fruit of that awakening arises according to the dhamma, according to its own nature. So we don't have to really do anything. 
we can't really do it. I mean, all, all we do as practitioners is moments of path activity, moments of being here, moments of being present, moments of inquiry, and allowing the fruit of that to ripen in and of its own accord. So I'd like to offer these uh, reflections tonight uh, to support our practice. Finishing this, um, I'd like to dedicate, if we can dedicate uh, the, our day of practice for uh, the welfare of others. And in particular, I'd like to remember a friend of uh, Chitindri and myself, Nimala, who passed away uh, last night. An old friend and supporter of the Chithurst Monastery and of uh, our work in South Africa. Did a lot of um, helping with the fundraising for projects in South Africa. May we dedicate our practice to her. That she may journey well through the transition of uh, into wherever, wherever. And may we dedicate our practice uh, for the welfare of all beings. So finishing again with this mantra, Om Mani Padme Hum. And as we chanted, allowing uh, the blessings from our practice today, the moments of mindfulness, patience, kindliness, gentleness, may we allow that to permeate out into this room to touch each other. May each of us here be well. May our hearts be at ease and to touch those, particularly those that have died or are suffering. And, uh, and beyond to touch all beings. May there be well-being. May there be freedom from suffering.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.